Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hey, welcome everybody. This is a masterclass, a system club masterclass, which we now do occasionally when something comes up that I think is really interesting. And today we're talking with Rich Jacobs. Welcome, Rich. Thanks, Ken. Rich is a longtime system club member and a colleague, and uh, we kind of are, are similar in some ways in that we have a business side and we have a, another side. So we're going to talk about both of those things that, that Rich does. We're also going to talk about the fact, and this blew me away, he, he and I actually got to meet in real Real time, real space, uh, right up here, Hudson Valley. And he casually mentioned he has 80 employees. That's eight zero, and I, I almost fell off my chair. Uh, we're also going to talk about his insights into chess and how you can apply them, if we have enough time, how you can apply them to success in life. So, Rich, could you just tell us a thumbnail sketch of your core business, uh, maybe even a little bit about how it got started and how it grew, you know, and then into your other your other operation, which is, you know, was really interesting. They're all, they're both interesting. They're different. Yeah. He started my, so we do marketing for attorneys for small firms, you know, one, two or three attorneys in a firm. We do like seven different practice areas, you know, estate planning, bankruptcy, family law, et cetera. So about 14 years ago, 15 years ago, I got into internet marketing. I know Dan Kennedy says there's no such thing as just marketing, but you know, I wanted to try my hand in internet marketing. So I tried affiliate type promotions you know, learning pay-per-click and SEO and all this other stuff. And one night I was looking at the most expensive keywords and they seemed to be drunk driving lawyers, uh, that kind of thing. They were paying $100 a click or more. I thought, wow, it looks like, you know, according to my training from marketing people like yourselves and Kennedy, that there's money in this niche. So I looked into it further and I thought, well, I, I feel like I'm getting pretty good at SEO. If I can help these attorneys get leads and not have to go the pay-per-click route, which was crazy expensive, this might be a business. So I started doing that. I started doing lead generation for DUI cases only. So they figured it was the least ugly out of the, you know, the things that can happen in a legal profession. I don't want to do divorces or murders or things like that. They so figured DUI is more innocuous. So I started that. I created a website called My DUI Attorney. It became a national index that so we supplied leads to attorneys all over the U.S. I eventually sold that to a competitor and then I, I went more full service. I decided I wanted to do the SEO for the attorneys, the social media, the newsletters, et cetera, a whole basket of, of marketing, you know, items to help them. Because the, the old saw is that they're, they're really good at being lawyers, but they're terrible at being marketers. So that's what I decided to do. So fast forward, I've been doing that for 13 years, built a company around it. And that's the main breadwinner in my life, you know, pays the bills and everything. That's the main thing that I do. Gotcha. Is that across um, many different legal specialties or are you still with uh, DWI? You know, now it's up to the total. I've, I've done probably 17 practice areas. There's a core seven that we tend to get the most of. But yeah, it's not just DUI. It's a whole bunch of areas of law. 
So if somebody's an attorney and they they know, gosh, I'm supposed to be doing this SEO stuff, and I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to have a blog, and I'm supposed to have this, and I'm supposed to have that, I never get to it. Nobody in my office can do it. If they know about you, they call you up. Exactly. Yeah, I do email marketing. We send out an email five days a week that has information, and we've been doing that for at least eleven years. We have a big list of about thirty-five thousand attorneys that we email, and we're always growing that list. Yeah, you got to do a lot of marketing, and we help the attorneys with the marketing because they're not good at it. And this is a basically the classic do it done for you service. In other words, you're not teaching them how to build blogs or you know any of that. You're actually just doing it. Yeah, they don't really want to learn. They don't want to deal with it. They they want to have it as like a utility. You know, they they need cable vision. They turn on the cable box. They need uh, you know something swept up in the house. They have a housekeeper. They don't they don't want to do it themselves. So we do it for them, and they're happy that way. Yeah, and, and I think you know their only asset is billable hours. So, you know, if, if they're spending hours trying to figure out how to do SEO, it, it's not a sane thing to do. So that's great. So now here's what knocked me off my chair. I said I almost fell off my chair, so I guess I should be more accurate. I almost fell off my chair. 80 employees. I would lose my mind if I had that even remotely that man. I'm losing my mind with the ones I have. And so you gave me some amazing insights. First of all, where are these employees? Are they, are they in your uh, home office? <laughs> No, they're in uh, Lahore, Pakistan. Okay, Lahore, Pakistan. And then that's an English-speaking uh, part of the world, which people may not be aware of. I, I think, isn't that like the second biggest country of English speakers in the world or something? They, they speak English. Um, you know, the, the English-speaking ability is moderate. You're not going to get a lot of great fluent speakers there, but it's plenty enough where, you know, we can, I can interact with them and they understand and it's fine. They have, they have a tremendous work ethic. They're very, very hard workers. The difficulty is that culturally, they're told just to sit there, say nothing, memorize things, don't think, don't challenge authority. So then when you ask them to do that, it's very hard because they're not conditioned to do that, unfortunately. So that's that's one of the difficulties and the, the uniqueness of working with people, I would say, from India, Pakistan, Malaysia, Philippines, etc. Again, they're all wonderful people. They're very good, hardworking people, and I can trust them very highly. But there are times where it's, you know, we have difficulties. It's, you know, it's really important to have that cultural perspective. And, you know, I, I even studied anthropology in school and I uh, read books on, you know, anthropological issues related to the workplace. And it's great to have your insight because I am, I do have some, you know, I have a Filipino guy working for me and he drives me crazy. And then when I talk to you, I realize, oh, okay, I should have known this. You know, this is how they're educated. They're educated to do what they're told. And, and he does, he does what he's told. He is loyal as hell. He does work hard. He doesn't even want to take vacations. I have to like force him to take vacations. But independent thinking, that's just not happening. And it doesn't matter how many years he's been with me. It's it it's getting better, but it shocked me at first. But but your insight that this is a, a cultural feature, it's how they're educated, it's how they're socialized, it's what their society expects of them. And it kind of gives you you know appreciation for our culture and, and, and other other cultures that do train independent thinkers. It's uh you know, we take it for granted. Yeah. So now you, the other, so that was the first big aha. And, and you know, like so many big ahas, it's something that I should have and could have known, but I needed you to tell me and I appreciate it. Anybody out there that's working with people from those kinds of countries, you just, you just have to deal with, you just know what they can do and what they can't do. And what they can't seem to do is show initiative and think independently. I mean, there's always exceptions, but in general, that's just the case, you know. The next thing you told me, which, 
also blew my mind and has changed already the way I'm operating with my very small staff, really, is tell me about your layers of workers. So you've got your workers, and then you have the quality assurance, and then you have, I think you said you have the quality assurance of the quality assurance. Can you talk about that and why it's so necessary? Yeah. Let me give you, this is the juicy part. So when I first started with you know my crew, it was much smaller, but we had problems every day. Then through systemization, optimization, 80-20, which I'll get more into as we go, we got the problems down from every day to once a week, and then once a month, and then once a quarter. And then the problems that would flare up once a quarter, they got less and less severe. Then it got to be really just about every six months. And now when there's problems, a lot of the time, you know, I'll, I'll speak to my guys and I'll say, hey, what's going on? They're like, listen, don't worry. This is what the problem was. This is what we did to fix it. And, you know, we put it in a system in place that so won't happen again. And I say, okay, great. It's gotten to that point. It took several years, but this is the this is the real win in working with, with these kind of people is, is what I did with systemization and everything. So I just want to give a quick overview on the power of it and what it did. Please do. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So again, because of the way that they are, I started reading Work the System by Sam Carpenter. And I read uh, you know, Terry Marshall's 80-20 book and Richard Kasha's 80-20 book. And I read the Checklist Manifesto. So I started implementing systems with the people. You know, here, here's one great example. So when we do have a new website for an attorney, uh, we'd have a little checklist of what to do to make sure the site runs properly. And we would do it and a problem would come up. Oh, I haven't seen this before. Okay, add it to the checklist. Oh, well, this is odd. All right, uh, let's change this in the checklist. So over time, we've changed the checklist probably a hundred times, literally. But it's grown stronger and stronger and stronger. And we're at the point now where my guys can put up a website for an attorney with pretty much zero mistakes every time in about 10, 11 days. So it's amazingly powerful. But this wasn't a one and done. This was over time and iteration towards making it better and better and better. So that's what I would encourage people is not only systematize and optimize, but over time, you want to continually improve your processes. And if you do, they get to be incredibly strong and valuable. I would put a value on that checklist to be hundreds of thousands of dollars alone because of what it can do. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Wow. And who, is there a person in on your staff that specifically manages the checklists? Yeah, we have, we call it like a clients manager that has all the checklists. Um, what I did over time is, you know, we had to categorize them, put them in the right silos, put them into a wiki. But now every six months we revisit them. So here is another innovation is uh, we talk to the doer of the task. You know, hey, so-and-so, you've been doing this task 200 times in the past six months. What are you noticing? Is there a step that should come out? Should we add in a step? Should we rearrange the steps? You know, what have you seen that irks you about this that you think would be a lot better? And we get the feedback of the doer, and they usually have very good feedback. They have to do this thing every day. And in most businesses, from what I understand, people will say, do this, and shut up, and that's it. But I ask my people because I want them to be happy and to optimize the process. So we get great feedback. That way, we make things even better. 
that's another layer of what we've done. So I have, so I have two questions. Who manages that? The the going, to, excuse me, the going to the worker and saying, okay, let's let's review. We use a calendar for tons of things. So part of systemization is is to calendar things. So if I'm working on something and I'm expecting to hear an answer next Thursday, what we say is, all right, we're gonna know the calendar to look at it next Thursday. Then we don't have to think about it anymore because when you have to deal with 20, 30, 50, 100 things to do, to, it, there's no way you'll lose your mind. So we put you know next to look at dates on everything because then every day we can sort the list and the stuff that you know we have to look at today bubbles to the top. So that was another huge time saver and mental time saver as well. It gets rid of a lot of mental clutter. Gotcha. And you also mentioned that you have more than one checklist. Uh, just ballpark figure, how many separate checklists do you have? Probably have. 150 checklists and procedures. They have many different departments. So each each department has its own stuff. And then the last thing I want to ask before we go on is, you mentioned it takes, you said 10 to 11 days to get a website up from scratch? Yes. I mean, I, I imagine these aren't cookie cutter then. They're in some sense. So what we did is we only use WordPress because it's very well supported. I'm sure as you know, like a quarter of all websites run on it. We use WP Engine for hosting because they're specialized only on WordPress and they get all the plugins and take a lot of the work away doing that. You know, they'll see, oh, Yoast now, the new plugin is causing a malware, so don't use it, you know, et cetera. So a lot of this has to, okay, in order to do systemization, there are some things that you want to have exactly the same so you don't have to think about them. So it's reducing the cognitive load. So again, everything WordPress, WP Engine hosting helps. Then we develop a series of 10 templates. So we have what's called the design center, so now we have the attorneys go in there, you know, with their with our customer service rep, and they go through the design center. Which one do you like the best? And I would say 95% of the people choose one. Some people say, well, I don't like any of them. And then we have to say, all right, well, uh, here's some of your competitors. Uh, which one do you like? We can model the site based on that. But for the most part, the design center works. And again, it, it's a form of systemization. Do you charge them extra if they want a purely custom site? They don't usually want purely custom. They just want a little bit of a design tweaks or a different design. So we don't usually charge for that. If they want all these crazy bells and whistles, that's very rare. But if that happens, then yes, we tell them, look, that's way outside our, you know, what we do. Or if they want it coded in uh, ASP or, you know, some other language, we tell them why we do what we do. We don't recommend that. It's up to you. So we've had a few one-offs, but it's rare. How big are these websites, like in terms of pages? Uh, depend, depends on the site. Uh, the, the average site, when they come to us, will be, you know, 30 to 40 pages. And then over time, we'll add content. So some of our clients have now four or 500 page sites. Oh, wow. You know, some of them, again, start out with very few pages. But, you know, one of the huge things we do is we add content, and that's a whole other discussion. But that helps with the SEO, and over time, they grow. Wow. So these, these are good-sized sites. Well, if can we talk about content? How I assume you produce the content for them. Yeah, well, before we talk about that, another thing I figured out is there's only a few types of pages that constitute an attorney's site. So this makes it easier, too. So 99% of the pages on an attorney's site are article pages. One article per page, and you get the home page, then you'll have the contact us page and the attorney bio page. And that's about it. So that's what the site looks like. So if you just say, Oh, it's a 500 page site, you may think, Oh my God, how do you make that? You know, but if you look at there's only a few kind of pages, well, now it, it changes how you look at it. And again, it's a much more systematized, easier way to look at it. That's the first thing. The way we do content is we'll interview the attorney you know, on audio and we get that transcribed and edited and that turns into a series of articles that go on their site. Then we do uh, voiceover videos, you know, have a talking head 
that'll read elements of the articles and make videos out of it. We make social media posts out of it. We've made books. They have a program called Speak a Book where we'll interview an attorney for about an hour and a half. And we make that into a book that goes on Amazon. But this same content, again, can serve and repurpose. It just goes so much further when you can do that. So that's how we develop because then it's in the attorney's own words. It captures their own special, you know, what's special about them and how they operate, et cetera. We know it's legally valid because the attorney spoke it. So unless they don't know what they're doing, you know, there's no arguments there. That's good. Yeah. And if it's wrong, hey, it, it's their fault. So the interviewing, interviewing is, is obviously a, a art and science and you're an excellent interviewer, but do you have people on your staff that handle these interviews? Yeah, I used to do everything when I first started you know, about 25 clients in the beginning, I did everything. But, you know, you run into a wall very quickly. So in order to scale, I've had to slowly replace myself out of every job. Pretty much there now. It took years. But, yeah, I have a lady that does all the interviews, and now she has an assistant. So those two do all the interviews. I stopped doing them after about six, 700 of them. You know, not that I wasn't happy to do them, but you got to run the business. Spawn with and, and I have to say, after a while, that kind of interview would probably get a little old, you know, so now tell me, since you've excellent interviewer yourself, and now you've trained a second generation of interviewers, which is really impressive, a few things that people should know about how to, to conduct a good interview, some of the principles that you follow. Well, very quickly, you want to get the pacing of how the other person speaks. So some people go big really fast. Some are really slow. Tough ones to interview are the really boring ones that have nothing to say. So I can tell you within five minutes, speaking to someone, wow. You know, if I ever got in trouble legally, I'd hire this person or, oh my goose, how does this person help, you know, handle any clients? They're like, like a dead fish. <laughs> so understanding the personality of the person you're talking to is not easy. You don't want to have just scripted questions because then you get an interview like, okay, my first question is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they give the answer and you ignore what they say. And you go, okay, my second question is, that's not a good interview. You want to go back and forth. And, and when someone says something surprising, you say, Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. You can have a, a conversation instead of just, you know, interrogating someone or, or question and answer. Gotcha. Another is that they're all recorded. Tell everyone the interview is being recorded. You can restate anything you want. We can take out anything you want. We can, you know, don't worry. You can relax and just do the interview. So after the first few statements, the person usually relaxes and then the interview is fine. You don't need to make any edits, I've noticed. I think, oh, that that's really interesting. And I find that too. If you are engaging in a genuine conversation with somebody, in other words, you're asking questions, listening to the answers, changing the subject or elaborating or however normal conversations go, you don't really need to do a whole lot of editing, if any. Right. After the first couple of minutes, yeah, almost nobody has a hard time once you get into it. And the other thing I tell them too, and I tell my staff is to say, this is a friendly interview. There's no ambush. We're not going to attack you. I'm not going to try to make you look bad. This is to help you. So don't worry about that. You don't need to have your guard up. It's okay. And that's that's very important too. It's probably especially important for attorneys because, I mean, they're just aware that interrogations can have multiple intentions behind them. Yep, exactly. And they're, you know, they're in the courtroom. Everything is about ambush. You know, not never asking someone a question you don't know the answer to kind of thing. So we want to, we got to take them out of courtroom mode because if they get into that mode, it's very difficult to deal with them. It's like like trying to take something away from a dog and they are pulling back <laughs> on you. They won't let go. Gotcha. So just to recap, so we've got 80 employees. You have a 
really well thought out system for systematizing and, and creating checklists and uh, SOPs, you know, standard operating procedures. You know that your guys, they're hardworking and loyal, but they're not necessarily going to be innovators. So it, it's up to you to put them on the right path and then and to have some, you know, quality assurance and then and then show interest in them and their situation and see what you can learn. I mean, this seems such, these seem like such obvious things, but I guarantee there are companies out there, large and small, uh, that have never had a conversation with their employees about what could go better or what could be changed, what does it need to be done, what needs to be done more of, what kind of support do you need that makes a difference? I mean, this is really all valuable stuff. Then you've talked about content generation and how you handle that. And then we've gotten a little bit into the fine art of uh, interviewing. So we've covered a lot already. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So you you built this machine and this human machine, this producing really good results for all concerned, for you, for your clients, for your employees. And now you've branched out into, a, we'll call it a passion project, but it's not a hobby. I mean, it's something that very serious. Can you talk about it, how it started, how it developed and where it's at now? Yeah, I, in 2016, I was caught up, you know, in the Trump-Hillary election it was making me angry every day. At the same time, I started getting emails from Peter Diamandis, who has done the X Prize and you know, Singularity University, et cetera. So he would talk about AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, uh, evolutionary biology. I read his articles and I felt happy and excited about the future. I would look at the election stuff, I'd be angry. And I made the decision one day, there's nothing I could do about this election. I'm leaving it alone. I'm tired of being angry constantly. I'm going to focus on the things that make me happy. Because I had, I had systematized my business to the point where I really didn't have to do much work every week. I was doing, you know, five hours a week and things were running so smooth. So I was in a way bored and looking for other things to do. So I, I would read articles about you know, that he would put out on in his blog. And I wanted to know more because it, it would be very surface level. They talked about a new technology. So I figured, all right, I'm going to start trying to find people and interview them and ask them the questions I want to ask about this topic because the article is just, you know, the teaser, just the taste. So I started doing that. I did that with a lot of uh, cryptocurrency. I was very interested in Bitcoin. I ended up interviewing like 350 different uh, crypto-related companies, and I put on a conference about it. Did that for a few years with the podcast. Then I ended up getting thyroid cancer, and so my interest turned a lot more to the biomedical because I was trying to help myself and interview people that were relevant to that. So I started doing uh, tons of medical type things. I've interviewed probably about 150 people that are associated with cancer. I've done several hundred viruses, et cetera. And then I said, all right, what am I going to do with all this information? So I started making books out of it. So I, with the virus people, I interviewed a whole bunch. And then I found that some of the questions I was asking, they kept saying, I don't know. That's a good question. I kept hearing that. I took all the I don't knows, the most difficult questions. And then I re-interviewed the top virus scientists. And I made a book out of it. And that was thrilling because that was like next level interviewing. Those interviews were so fun because I had some people laugh and go, I, I don't even know the answer to that question. That's I've never been asked that before. And it was just so thrilling to me to do that. So my goal was to make a book that would not be outdated for hopefully at least 20 years because the questions were so difficult. And I built a real camaraderie with the interviewees because they were like, wow, this guy really is asking crazy questions, amazing stuff. And sometimes I would get good ideas and say, go for it. You know, I, I don't have the time to do anything. You do it. So that was, you know, I started doing books. I did one again on viruses, on cancer. We have one on microplastics that's coming out in a few weeks. I started doing smaller books on things that I've thought about, like lessons I've learned from chess. I have one on homeschooling, you know, what we learned from that. But my goal is to take all these interviews I've done and get them out there again in different formats so more people can digest them and learn from them. 
I want to just pick up on something that you said earlier, I think is so important about this. You established a sense of camaraderie. Now, sometimes, and, and I'm sure you found this with certain doctors and certain scientists, they don't want to be asked questions they can't answer. They get quite defensive. So you seem to find a way to, with certain people at least, uh, to get around that. Maybe it's just your style, maybe your vibe, you know, I don't know. Any thought, can, any, can you make any comments on that? Because that's that's a real, real art. Yeah, I've learned. So- when I would interview CEOs very quickly, I was like, that was a situation of both parties using each other. The CEOs and the high level people, they attract other guests because they're like, oh, wow, you got so-and-so. All right, I'll interview with you. But when you do these interviews, you can tell they're media trained. I don't really answer any of, any of the questions. It's like, you know, they usually have one of their associates, marketing associates on the call. I'm just listening in, you know, because they don't want them to say anything they're not supposed to say. So those interviews, again, I, I did them and I saw the purpose of them pretty quickly, but I don't like doing it. Then I switched more to college professors. They were a certain breed. Some were really good and amazing at what they talked about. Some were just, it, sometimes I'd interview graduate students and I could see that they weren't nearly as practiced and polished. So I can get into a lot more ideas with them, but they couldn't answer the question. They would say, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I could hear them getting nervous. But you know, sometimes when you go to the professors, especially if they've been one for 10, 20 years, Sometimes you just get a wall of resistance. Some were open, it just depended. Then I would interview, you know, doctors, and some of them were okay. A lot of them would just give you the basic. Uh, some of them that were really innovative, they would give me the really juicy details, and I'd get more information. I talked to holistic practitioners. Some of them were great. Some of them literally work waxed, which made me sad because they make the whole alternative medicine industry look bad. I mean, there are tons of great people in that industry. I'm totally, in, you know, in favor of it. I believe it. But the few loud ones that really are crazy can poison the industry and the people in the, you know, the regular side of medicine use that to demonize the whole industry. So I saw all these dynamics. I interviewed a whole bunch of people on beekeeping and I found those people to be really cool and warm and happy. And then other industries, everyone was like real curmudgeon and it was just very difficult to get any information out of them. So doing the interviewing, that's what I saw is there's a lot of tribes around the world or groups that do different things. And, you know, some are friendly, some are not. Another phenomenon, I'll tell you the last one is every once in a while, and this was what really would excite me. Okay, so when I start to interview in an industry, at first I didn't know the terms. So the first four or five interviews would be okay. And then as I got to know the terms and I sounded more and more like an insider, I would get more information out of these people. And once I got to, let's say, 20 or 30 within an industry, I could start to ask really good questions. And then the people would open up more often and really respect me and be happy because I was asking them real solid stuff. Like I would hear after the interviews, like, wow, I didn't think we would get into that level of detail. That was really good. And, you know, as I get into an industry, once I get to, let's say, 100 people, now I'll see two or three that are really just exceptional. You get on the phone with these people, and after a couple minutes, you're like, wow, this person is deep in this and what they do. This is going to be awesome. And so some people, I'd have fantastic conversations where they were just like, a, they were amazing at what they did. Those are the geniuses, and that's what I ended up naming the podcast. At first, it was called Future Tech. Then I named it Finding Genius because that's what I was really trying to get to, is how do I find super exceptional people in every field? So that's that's just some notes of what I noticed from interviewing. Wow. I love something, too. I'm always telling folks that, look, this is a lot about being prolific, this this whole world that we're in, that we're, these things that we're trying to do. You can't interview two or three if you're serious. You can't interview two or three people and think you're going to get anything good. And as you point out, you won't be good no matter how hard you try or how well prepared you are until you've interviewed about 20. And then that magic happens where now suddenly you sound like an insider 
and indeed you're kind of you're kind of like do you ever feel like an insider did you ever you know that gee i i know as much about this as the people i'm interviewing yeah it gets to that point where only the exceptional people can give you anything new what i picture like this so as i go into an industry the more people i interview i picture myself floating above say a, a game board like a monopoly board or you know i thought about it as an ant farm i can see where all the ants in this industry are going okay these guys are doing this these guys are doing that and i have a better picture after a while of an industry than the people in it because mm -hmm. they don't communicate nearly as much as they should and i try to encourage them to but a lot of them won't but once you've interviewed 100 people in the industry, you know the industry pretty well. You know all the new stuff going on. You know all the ins and outs and all that. And then you can really make improvements and innovations on it if, if everyone would just work together. Yeah, and it's such an interesting point. It is shocking how poorly connected and networked many people are within their own industry. It's a completely self-inflicted injury. You don't have to be working in a silo. You can and should and, and and must reach out and your life becomes so richer. Your ability to perform becomes so better. And there's a, you know, there's a drastic need for this in every industry for somebody to come in and bring people together and network people together and introduce them to each other and maybe get them under the same roof or a conference like you did with uh, your uh, Bitcoin conference, which might've been a virtual conference. I don't know. It was in person. Person. 2018. And as we were talking before we turned the recorder on, there is a magic that takes place in uh, real life meetings that you can't duplicate. I mean, it, Zoom is wonderful. The telephone is wonderful, but there's nothing like being with somebody. And then there's nothing, really nothing like being in a conference facility with a group of people for two, three, four or five days, all focused on the same thing. The, the amount of serendipity that takes place is quite significant. The other, the other I want to pick up on and I'd say this a lot, but we, I can't say it too often. For instance, if you want to become a very well-informed direct response marketer, now there's a difference between being well-informed and a high-level practitioner. The only way to become a high-level practitioner is to do a lot of direct response. There's, you know, there's no way to get around that. But if you want to be well-informed and have a really good cognitive uh, foundation, you can become one of the top 1% of informed direct response people. I say a year, but you could probably do it in six months. Get the great classics. They're easy to find and each book points to the next one. And read a half hour in the morning and a half hour before you go to bed. And by the time six months rolls around, you're going to be head and shoulders above your immediate competition. You'll actually be in very rarefied circles. And, and people love informed people. Like other informed people love to talk with informed people. So it becomes a like a snowball effect. You know, every time the snowball rolls over, it gets proportionally even bigger, right? And then the next rollover, it's even bigger. And next thing you know, you got this huge set of acquaintances and colleagueships. Hey, can I, I want to ask you one uh, question and then I want to go to the to chess. Be Did you say beekeeping? Yeah. I don't know, probably 30, 40 people on beekeeping. They're a delight. Everyone in that industry I interviewed was just fantastic. They all offered, they all said, come visit, whether they're in Romania or upstate New York, wherever they were. They were all just very happy, great people. For some reason, that industry just attracts all the people I met were great. Well, so let me ask you two questions. Um, what attracted you to that, that group? And then what do you intend to do with it? Well, I, you know, I want to put a book out on it. So people ask me, oh, how do you find people to interview? So as I read now and as I go through articles and I see books and papers, I'll send it to my interviewer and I'll say, hey, try to get this person. You know, an article will come out, I'll read it. Oh, sounds interesting. All right, give me the person. Because it's never the end when you read an article or even a book. 
if you really like what the person is writing about and it piques your interest, there's a whole lot more if you can interview them. They just can't or maybe are not allowed to put a lot of the juicy stuff into the article or to the book. So you've got to talk to the person. If you really want to know about a subject, when you speak to them, you're going to learn all kinds of stuff that was never in the stuff you read. That's how I find you know, certain things. And when I like an industry, I'm like, all right, there's more info here. Let's get more people. Let's get more people. Let's get more. So I'll, I'll do deep dive series in industries that I think are interesting. And these come out in the form of book. I know in the um, health arena, you've got the book on cancer. You have the book on... Oh, sorry, viruses. On viruses. Sir. Yeah, microplastics is coming shortly. Anybody can go to Amazon, look up your name. Uh, is it under Rich or Richard? It's under Richard, but all the books are named the same. It's all Finding Genius... And then the title of the book. So Finding Genius, Understanding Cancer, you know, 50 Insights from Interviews with Practitioners. Gotcha. And those are the same format. There's another guy who happens to have your name who has a book. We won't tell you the title, but you'll know it when you see it and just realize that's not our Richard. That's some other guy. It's hilarious. There's another one out there. This might be a family show, so we're not going to talk about uh, what the title is, but you'll you'll know immediately it's not one of Rich's books. So this is cool. This is really so cool. You know, it, the world runs on information and nobody's keeping the information from us. I mean, maybe if we're, dealing, if we're trying to deal with government conspiracies, you know, that's a whole other issue. But in industries or in professions or in hobbies or, you know, whatever it might be, not everybody's going to want to talk to you. But uh, if you approach them the right way, a lot of people will be willing to talk to you. And as Rich pointed out, like that once you're informed, the personal conversation with somebody takes you light years ahead of articles and even books. It's just the world. All right. So let's talk about some, your chess book. This really intrigued me. And of course, I went out and got it right away. I learned to play chess when I was six, but I never followed it up. I just, I don't know, it just wasn't for me. But I admire people that play chess. And I know some people are really into it. And I intuitively know that the lessons of chess are portable. You can move them you can t- use them in life. And uh, I've been waiting for someone to write a book on this. There's a lot, there's a million books on how to play chess, but there aren't many books on, okay, you learned all this stuff playing chess. Here's how it applies to life. So you've done that. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say like my thoughts are necessarily amazing or the greatest, but I, I've thought about many things over the years. So I decided as a supplement in between these big books, I'll do small books, you know, 30 pages, what I see and what I observe. The first one of these is I visited a bone museum in Oklahoma. It was really cool. There was hundreds of different creatures and, you know, their skeletons and all that. And I took a whole bunch of pictures and I said, I'm going to make a little book about my experience in the Bona Museum. And the funny thing is that book and that podcast that I did on it, it was just like a soliloquy. I just spoke about my experience and did the book. Um, That's been downloaded more than any of my other podcasts total. It, It still gets about 70 downloads a day, every day consistently. And I think it's up to about 40,000 downloads of that podcast. And the book on Amazon is doing okay, you know. So I said, all right, I'll start making these little books about my experiences. So the chess book, I was speaking to, you know, one of the guys that works for me. And we were talking about chess. And he's like, oh, uh, you know, they did this thing where they had grandmasters, you know, play the game. But they mixed up the pieces on the board. And they were no better than, than regular players. And I said, well, they're not real grandmasters if that's the case. And, you know, I said, I love chess. And he's like, well, yeah, I guess it's all right. I don't really get much out of it. And I said, you don't get any lessons out of playing it? No. I said, wait, what are you crazy? There's so many lessons. So I told him, you know, five different things I've learned. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to make a short book about it. So I wrote up the five lessons I learned and I made it into a a book about chess. So one example is, you know, people always tell you, oh, you got to think 
uh, five moves ahead. Well, no, you, you just got to think one move ahead. Most people don't even think at all, oh, if I do this, then what will happen? That's one move ahead. If you at least do that, things will be a lot better for you. You know, another thing that I learned uh, from playing chess is, let's say you want to carry out an attack or do something. Don't just do it without a little bit of planning. Make one or two preparatory moves that will strengthen your position before you do what you're going to do. So this applies directly to life and business. Don't just barrel into something and rush, but at the same time, don't procrastinate and be a perfectionist. There's a sweet spot in the middle where you do a little bit of preparation and things will go much better for you. So those are just two examples of the lessons I learned from it. That's why I put the book out. Great, great. So people that are interested in that, I recommend everybody get that, whether you're a chess player or not. There are some other lessons that are quite profound. It's And it's a short book. It's a quick read, to say the least. But, you know, I'm a huge believer in law. It needs to be as long as it needs to be to be useful. And if, you know, if you're just bulking up something for the sake of bulking it up, that's not necessarily helping the reader. And it's creating more work for you. So I, I love the format of the super short book on Amazon. It's a, a great thing. You know, you referred to something that we haven't really talked about. This is yet another area of expertise that you have, which is podcasting. So we've already talked about interviewing, the skill of interviewing. And actually, one thing we haven't talked about, let me talk about, let me ask you this question before we go to podcasting, and it is related, reaching people. Sometimes I'm lucky and I'm able to reach people. Sometimes Sometimes I'm astonished at how hard it is to get people just to re respond to an email. And I wonder how they're living, how they're functioning in the world where they don't respond to an intelligent email. Well, what I've noticed is some people never text. Some people only text. Some people like to call. Some people like to email. So you, you got to learn, if you can, the person's preferred communication style. And then it works better. Because I've had people, like I said, they'll... They just will never, ever text. And some people, that's all they do. And you call them, they never answer. But then they text you a minute later. You're like, answer the phone. <laughs> you know, so that's what you have. That's one big thing you have to do. Another thing, too, is if you if you can't get to somebody, get to people that they know first and interview them and then name drop. Because if, let's say you're Bob Smith and I want to interview you and you're the number one expert in the world on uh, orthopedic surgery. And I tell you, I've interviewed Joe Jones and Jane Smith. And then Bob Smith will go, oh. Oh, you interviewed those people? Okay, yeah, I'll talk to you. So those are two strategies to get to the people that you really want to interview. Gotcha. So let's talk about podcasting. So getting a guest is, is challenge one. Having a productive, congenial, conversational, lively, alive, a real authentic conversation, interesting conversation is the next challenge. The third challenge is distribution. So you, you said some very interesting things about the, the relative power of different platforms for, for distributing podcasts. Mm. Would you be willing to share what you learned about that? Sure, yeah. I always push stuff to the limits. So, it, you know, I started the podcast a long time ago and I asked my team, find like every channel on earth that we could put this thing on. And I get a report every day from every channel that the podcast is on, how many listens, and we sort them by most to least, you know, what reviews do we have on which channels, et cetera. So I saw pretty quickly, we, we started out with like 64 channels. And the reason for this, by the way, is, some podcasts, they're only on iTunes, and I have an Android, and it's a pain in my ass to listen to it. Some are only on Spotify. I don't want to go on Spotify. Some are only, you know, why not make it accessible? To, why make it hard for people to listen? It's just stupid. So, again, we put it on 64 channels. I found that about 20 or 21 of them gave us any appreciable traffic. Then we looked at the, you know, the top 20. What were the top three or four? Okay, we better make sure we've got reviews on those and focus on those, because those are the 
the lion's share of it. But then when I got into some controversial topics, some of which shouldn't even be controversial, I had to say, all right, I better go to all these alternative publications too, like Parler, BitChute, Rumble, etc., and see if we can get traction there in case the main channels blow up on us. And I've had that almost happen with YouTube. I've got a couple of strikes where they said, you know, you post anything else on this, we're going to take your channel down. So that's been the evolution of it. But unfortunately, the big guys, the big dogs still have the lion's share of the traffic. So if if I was cut off from YouTube and iTunes and stuff like that, I would have uh, probably about 20% of the traffic I get now. Can you tell us the must-have channels that we need to be on? So YouTube, obviously, iTunes. Can you tell us something? You want to have a website. We get tons of listens from people going to the website. So if you do a podcast, have a website. Even if you just post all the podcasts on there and do nothing else, have it. Because... A lot of people want to do it that way. They can download them. They can listen. They can play them on the site. The whole point is this. Make it easy for people to consume your stuff. Don't be a pain in their ass because they'll be like, bye, and just go on to something else. It's like when I go to stores and, you know, I go to a store that was closed. I'm like, what? Why are you guys closed? Oh, we put it on Instagram. Here's Instagram. <laughs> well, that's what we did. Fine. To hell with you. Goodbye. I'm not going anymore. I learned this from Dan Kennedy. Make it easy for, don't don't make it hard for people to give you money or give you attention. This is stupid. Gotcha. But so YouTube, iTunes, site. So, yeah, YouTube, iTunes, your own site. And then when we get down into more niche type stuff. So certain things will work topically on Spotify, certain won't. Certain things will work very well on Parler, certain won't. So you have to know the personalities of some of these other sites. You know, BitChute will work for certain things and not for others. Like, like Parler is usually politics-based stuff. So if you're doing health, it just doesn't work very well there. That's what I would look at with the other channels. But you got your main, you know, three or four. I don't know all of them right offhand. I have to look at the report. Just the ones that are absolutely must-have. So you need to be on YouTube. You need to be on iTunes. Um, you, you need to have your own website. And I assume you're good at yes. inspiring people to subscribe to your list. And then that becomes a, a army that you can mail to every time you have new content. Yeah, that I've been doing as well. So I have a list of a little over 6,000 subscribers. So, you know, I had a, actually my doctor's assistant came down all of a sudden with stage four cancer, you know, lung cancer, which was terrible. So I emailed the list and I had spoken to a bunch of people that I feel, I felt like were really good health practitioners. So I emailed the whole list, said what happened. And I got like 30 or 40 replies with, with tons of help in it. And I passed all that on. I printed up all the emails. I passed it on to the lady with some books by people I've interviewed. And she was very grateful, you know, I, it's up to her to take action, of course, but I'm able to do things like that because of the list. I'm able to ask the list questions. You know, what do you want to see? What don't you want to see? We email, I email my list once a week. We call it Think It Over Thursdays. So, well, you know, one of my editors will take like a, an interesting question from three podcasts that week and we'll put it in an email. You know, what do you think about this? And we drive people to listen to the podcast again. We'll do a daily email of what podcast we just did and links to it. And all this is just trying to get more and more consumption of them. Gotcha. And then maybe the last question, why you've shared so much. This is a really, people listen to this again, or hopefully you took notes while you were listening to it the first time. There, there's a ton of useful content here. And I say that as somebody who's been running businesses a long time and seen a lot of businesses. YouTube, I just have to ask, what videos did they find offensive uh, that they felt you could not have? You were a bad citizen if you dared to exercise your free speech and First Amendment rights. What was so offensive to them. COVID topics. Amazing. I told, well, this is interesting for people to listen to. There was one lady we interviewed. Now I know that YouTube keeps a list because we uploaded her video within a second. Literally, YouTube took it down and flagged it. 
So they've got to have names. They're just automatically flagging because there's no way a human reviewer would do that. No way. Gotcha. Well, Rich, thank you. I think we left no stone unturned in this call. We covered a lot of ground and, uh, you know, and here's something, you know, maybe to bring this full circle, the power of a personal meeting. So I don't know how long we've known each other. It's a long time, but it's been a huge supporter of all my work. It's meant a lot to me, frankly. And uh, we finally got a chance to spend an extended period of time. And I've known him for a long time. There were all these little things I didn't know. I didn't know about his chess book. I didn't know he had 80 employees. No, the ins and outs of how he, you know, t targets and conquers a content area. But I think, I don't know, the lesson here is, it, Rich, to me, is if, if you're willing to organize yourself, you can move mountains. And that the information's out there and it's there for the taking. I mean, they're not, maybe it's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter, but you know, there aren't many roadblocks or 20 foot tall solid steel walls blocking you from getting information. So, and information indeed is power. I imagine, I mean, you just, the value of, of what you've accumulated through these ventures, independent of the books, independent of anything else, it must be just great. You, you know, you're going through life seeing what's going on as opposed to wondering what's going on. Yeah. Just a couple of things that comes to mind. I just want to tell people. With the podcast, here's one phenomenon I noticed. So I'll, I'll talk to you, Ken, or someone else, and, and I'll say, how'd you get this person? I just asked them. And then they'll say, well, wait a minute, how'd you get that person? I just asked them. So you got to ask. Some people that you think will definitely do it won't do it, and they'll, they'll disappoint you. Some people you never think will speak to you will speak to you. Oh, wow. That's great. Like I interviewed uh, Kevin Kelly, you know, the founder of Wired Magazine. He wasn't too nice, but at least I got him, you know, fine. So... You know, that's one thing. Another thing, too, that would drive me crazy is I would do a podcast sometimes as guest and person would go, oh, yeah, we're going to put this out six months from now. And I was like, oh, so I tell people after I podcast with them, we're going to have it live within two weeks. And I'm I stick to it. I do not delay. I make sure that, uh, that it gets posted, you know, within two weeks, because that's the worst thing of all is you're a guest. And then like, all right, 10 years from now, we'll post it. What was the and, point? And then, of course, you let you let your guests know right away. And that's part of your promotional thing, because if they're happy with the interviews, and usually they are, I assume, they'll tell their network of people, hey, I was just on this show. Here's another thing, too, is I ask everyone for referrals. Some people give none. Some people give you a bunch right there. You know, like, it's like I used to have a route of vending machines and some restaurants you put them in. There's like 10 vending machines. They'll take anything. Some there was none. Some there was one. So same thing with asking for referrals, that multiplied the number of guests I had. Every time you ask for a referral and, you, you know, some guests give you five, some give you one, some give you three, but that explodes the number of podcasts. Like I've done over 3,000 podcasts in the past six, seven years. If I followed up on every referral, it would probably be well over 10,000. Amazing. So Rich, thank you for your time. Built a, a, an admirable, impressive business. And now you're having fun doing what you do and generating fantastic content for the rest of us. So when people look for your books on, first, what's the website that they can go to for Finding Genius? It's findinggeniuspodcast.com. That's the website where there's all the podcasts on there. And then if you go to Amazon and you type Finding Genius, you'll see you know a bunch of the books. Or you could also put in Richard Jacobs, and you'll see a bunch of the books. Those are like two great ways to delve in. Great. And you're also, you're a model for how to do this. I mean, because so many of our subscribers are in the information marketing business and the skills that uh, Rich has described here are fundamental. 
You know, it's like if we're talking basketball, like, can you dribble? Can you pass? Can you shoot? You know, and the skills that he laid out in this call are those level of skills and, and they'll take you far away. Well, thanks, Rich, so much. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Glad to come and speak. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.